Good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Today we're going to continue in the book of Romans. The title of the sermon is Good and Evil. We're going to spend two weeks on the book of Romans. Uh, this week, focusing on sort of larger themes uh, found in chapter 11 as it connects to the rest of the book of Romans. And then next week, uh, we will dive a little bit more into intricate relational detail about how God relates to, the infinite God relates to, finite human beings. We're going to address the topic of sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. And what sovereignty means is simply this. God, who is sovereign, can do anything he wants to do at any time. And if that statement, and let it sink in for a second, if that's true, a key question for us who are on the receiving end of such sovereignty is, well, what does he want to do? If he can do anything he wants to do, what does he want to do? And a follow-up question for our part is, what about the idea of human responsibility and freedom, and choice, and culpability, accountability, responsibility. How does that all play in? At the end of life, this is my suspicion as I study scripture and contemplate the world in which I have lived. Uh, My sense is that when I am seeing God face to face, and now I know in part, but when I know in whole, This is what I think I'm going to see. That God was more sovereign than I ever imagined. And that we were more responsible than we dare realized. That both of those things are going to be way, way, way jacked up than we realized. That God is more present and engaged and involved than we ever give him credit for. And simultaneously, at the same time, that we are more responsible, that there is more at stake, there's more affected. The butterfly effect is real. The whole sliding doors time machine problem. If you change one thing in the past, what are the ripple effects? And we're going to find that we had way more power and say in all of that than we realize. Both of those things true. And the way we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God today is by talking about good and evil. We'll start with evil. Okay, first, evil. We'll begin with verse 25. By the way, I'm going to need you to be on your game with that uh, Bible passage that's been printed for you in your bulletin. I'm going to be jumping through those verses. So if you are a note taker, underliner, get your pens ready. Um, That's the feedback I got. You got to kind of keep up with me a little bit today as far as uh, the biblical content goes. Okay, verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be unwise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. 
This is the third time that the hardening of the human heart is mentioned. The first time in chapter 9 and now here in verse chapter 11. And it's mentioned twice here in chapter 11. This hardening of hearts business that God is able to reach into my heart and harden it or reach into Pharaoh's heart and manipulate it. That's my word, not Paul's. Essentially making choice obsolete for me. And the obvious question that comes up in chapter 9 is, why does he, how can he possibly still find fault if he's the one who is directly affecting my heart? That's the question. If he is sovereign to that extent... That he is, to that level, a, that kind of micromanager. My words again, not Paul's. This is my question. How can he look to me for anything? What do I have to do? I'm just a chess piece. He's the player. He picks it up, moves it where he wants. As his heart desires, he seems to manipulate mine. And that's my problem with this word. That God is able to harden hearts, that he can affect the heart at all. What's the answer to that question, that conundrum? I think there's a clue, and it's found in the uh, uh, previous phrase, right before he uses the word hardening in verse 25. Paul says, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Now, that's a really important phrase. The statement that Paul is making there is huge. What he's saying is this, that we, you and I, our tendency is to be less wise than we think. We are, in other words, tending to overestimate our own wisdom. We are dumb and we don't know that we are dumb. We are double dumb. We are dumb and dumber. That we, whenever we think, I got it, this is my opinion, I've thought about this, I've prayed about this, I think this, I'm sincere about this, I have research, I have conversation, I have sought the counsel, and this is what I think. Think less than that. Go lower. Keep going lower. Because whatever thought you have, even if it's an afterthought, it's still not as good as it can be. This is our tendency to overestimate our own wisdom. And it is from this place that we ask the question, why? So at our best, when we are asking the question, why or how or what, they are Motives, behind the motives, there's a complexity to the heart that we don't understand. We lack knowledge. And this is in direct comparison to God in verse 33. Paul describing us as, do not be wise in your own estimation. And then in verse 33, Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. That relative to what God knows, the truths that he holds, the reality that he understands and defines as a sovereign God is large, 
very much larger than what we can begin to fathom or imagine. This is the dynamic. This is the gap. This is reality for us, that there's a whole world of truth and information that God has that we don't have. If we are all blindly feeling this gigantic elephant or water buffalo maybe today, and we're saying, no, I think elephant is broad and flat. We're saying, no, I think elephant is a fuzzy little ball. No, elephant is kind of this long, skinny thing. No, I think an elephant likes to wrap itself around us and squeeze us or shoot water at us. All of us are describing different aspects of the elephant. And Paul says, no, actually, God is observing the whole thing happening. Somebody is telling that story. Who has that kind of perspective? Who is telling the story? Oh, who made the water buffalo? Who made the elephant? Who made us? How are we able to feel or touch? How does that hold? That's God. There is a depth and a breadth and a richness to the wisdom and knowledge of God. We ought not to be surprised when the scripture says that our hearts, above all else, are deceitful. It's deluded. And it's darkened. We are darkened in our understanding, Paul says in Romans 1. That our hearts are crooked or bent. That even when we are doing good and have the best of intentions, there's a kind of multi-layeredness and complexity. And where our scripture puts it, a crookedness to our best. That nothing is purely good when it comes from us. That even the things we deem as good is tainted in some way, shape, or form. And even if it is good, it does not last, not for good, not for long. There's just a finiteness and a limitedness and a foolishness to what we are, who we are, that the image of God in which we are created is fallen. It's marred. It's fractures. And so the image of God isn't what it ought to be when it reflects off of us. Are you surprised by that? That you are not as good as you think you are? That even though we can criticize the world for all the atrocities, That we can shake our heads at people, at the decisions they make, at the thoughts they have, the feelings they hold on to. That we can look at everybody else and judge and be upset and think that we are better. And yet they are we. That is in us. What about the time that I was so angry and violent at Emmy when she was two and she wouldn't sit in the high chair at the restaurant when we were trying to have a good time with other friends? And I grabbed her and I brought her into the car and I cannot even tell you what I wanted to do to her. Where did all that rage and violence, frustration come from? Or the time when Maddie kept getting climbing out of her crib and Susie and I had to take turns. And each time she climbed out, we brought her back in, shut the door, and then we made a mark on a piece of paper. And she did it over 100 times. And Susie and I took shifts putting her back in her crib. And the unthinkable things we wanted to do to that little sweet Maddie. Where did that come from? 
or the time when I tried to almost kill someone before a speaking engagement at InterVarsity at Boston University when I was circling for over 30 minutes and couldn't find a parking spot and I finally found one and I definitely turned my blinker on first and they swooped in. And I turned to my pastor friend that I was bringing with me as an armor bearer. And I said, David, you ready for a fight? And he said, what? And I got out of the car, slammed my door shut. And I went to his car, knocked, pounded on his window, and then opened his door, stuck my head in, and then said, God knows what things I can't repeat right now. And then he said, oh, so sorry. And I saw the fear of God in his eyes. And he backed out. I pulled in, and I went in, and I preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a true, true story. Not one second exaggerated or added. Where did that rage come from? Or that time in high school when we were walking past Clinton High School and the Clinton kids came running down Harrison Field and there were the four of us and they tried to mug us and they started beating us up and they tried to steal our jackets and rip our backpacks and Mike one of the four walked away, ran away while we were being pummeled on the ground and the hatred we felt for his act of abandonment. And none of us ever talked to him again for the rest of our high school time. And that was in the ninth grade. Where did that rage come from? Where does such hatred come from? What am I capable of when I have power? Remember the definition of power? Ability plus opportunity. When I have power without obligation or accountability, what am I capable of? The atrocities and the unthinkable crimes which come from my human heart. Of course, the authors have tried to articulate this. The first one that comes to mind is the heart of darkness. Joseph Conrad, and the four words he utters when he enters the heart of the jungle and he sees all that man in his quote-unquote wisdom is capable of. He says these four words, the horror, the horror. Or what about the Lord of the Flies? What happens when you gather a few little kids together and put them on an isolated island? What's the first thing that happens? But murder. That's not about them. That's about me. It's about us. What is the human heart? It's a place from which we make decisions, from where our motives flow, which holds our desires and our fears. It's where the self resides. And it's not wise. And it's full of darkness and deceit, and it's bent. It is, as Scripture says, evil. John chapter 2, verse 24, implies this when Jesus says, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He did not need anyone to testify about man for he knew what was in man. Of course, Paul being the explicit man that he is puts it very bluntly in Romans 3. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless there is none who does good there is not even one and if you thought you were the one exception you are not and on top of all of this the the 
reality that our hearts are unwise and evil. Romans 8 and 13 add to this the reality of the spiritual realm that there are beings who are evil personified, pure to the core, the image of God non-existent in them, that they are raging a battle for our hearts, in our hearts, and they want influence. They want dominion of our lives. And there are forces greater than us at work that we are sufficiently capable of wrecking our own lives. And on top of all that, we have spiritual invisible forces at work all around us and sometimes in us. If you're you're a non-Christian here, have you ever thought about that? That it's not just you with your perfect mind, objectively considering evidence and making a decision about God? Whether at your pleasure he exists or whether at your displeasure you're an atheist, have you considered that maybe there are other forces at work? That if you look back on your life and you review the circumstances, that if you were to remember some of the dark thoughts that you've had in your heart, you realize that maybe you weren't alone and that it wasn't even just you and God, but there were other forces at work. Do you want to take the forces on by yourself? Now, who can reach and help and save the human heart? What is God to do? If you knew better, if you knew infinitely better than somebody that you are trying to love or relate to or care for, what would you do? And you could not possibly communicate. What would you do? How would you handle that? And so we have, good, when you begin to see, when I begin to see the corruption in my own heart, you know what happens? I begin to ask for mercy. I begin to ask for grace because I understand. Even if it was fleeting, I have this thought that maybe I'm better off in God's hands than my own then maybe if he were to help me, then maybe if he were in my heart and not left my heart alone, then maybe that's the best hope that I have. And then I also begin to think that maybe when I see my life and the things that I've been through, the decisions I've made, that the source of much of the good in my life, my thinking, my decisions, all of that wasn't just in my control, that maybe there was the presence of God Maybe there was a grace or a serendipity or if you need to stretch it, luck in my life. That I didn't have everything calculated. It wasn't all one plus one, therefore two. But maybe it turned out to be three or four and it was better and I don't understand how or why. But maybe it was God. And maybe it was the voice and presence and evidence of God in my life. I find myself as I contemplate the depravity of my own heart, the wretchedness of the man that I am, as Paul says, then maybe, maybe, just maybe, the fact that I'm alive, that the sun is still shining down on me, that I am still loved by many, maybe God has had something to do with that. Maybe God's spirit is around me and in me. Maybe 
It's not just my sins that I am adding up and calling it life. Maybe there is such a thing as forgiveness and release and newness. I begin to wonder about that. I find my dark heart beginning to hope for that. Maybe alongside evil, there is such a thing as good. No, not good with a small g. That'd be my good, which is no good. But good with a capital G, a good that's not so easily destroyed by my evil or good. Maybe something that has staying power. Maybe something that's far more absorbent and capable and maybe even invincible. As a dad, as a husband, as I think about my little kids and how naively trusting and vulnerable they are, how just a mood can impact their life. When I think about Susie, my my wife, who looks to me for companionship and how vulnerable she is to me. I think about my role as a pastor and the trust that a church puts in me. I shudder to think how easy it is to break trust or to hurt feelings or in a moment derail something that's being built for a long time. And you know what? I begin to ask for mercy. I say, God, please don't let me mess up. Please, please don't allow me to do what I'm capable of, but buffer me at every step. Be with me. Help me. I need to know that you are with me, said Moses to God. I will not go without you. What was he contemplating? The greatness of Israel? The power of his own abilities? When he said, God, I'm not going unless you go with me? No, that was God working in his life, causing him to consider his own evil and praying for the presence of good. Verse 5, according to God's gracious choice. Verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Verse 18, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Verse 32, so that he may show mercy to all. And then finally, the great benediction and blessing at the end, verse 33 to 35. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and to him, uh, for from him and through him and to him are all things. This is my great comfort, that God, above all else, is committed to preserving grace in my life. That throughout all of human history, there is divine revelation, self-revelation, when God says, I want to begin to walk with you. I want to show you who I am, how I am, how I work, and what I expect of you, and what you can expect from me. What is that? What is the main theme of all that God is wanting to reveal about himself? It is grace. This is most guarded priority 
in his relationship to us, the logic of God. He says, no, no, but then that wouldn't be grace. So I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. I won't do that. You can't do that. Well, why not? Why can't I earn my way to salvation? Why can't I get you to? No, because then it wouldn't be grace. Why does it have to be by grace? Because that's who I am. Everything you have, I gave to you. What do you have that you did not receive? Have, you, have I ever borrowed from you that I should pay you back? Can you ever be good enough so that I owe you? No, 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 no. It has to be grace because grace is reality. I have to guard it. Spelled out for us most explicitly here in verse 6. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What comes before that? Well, anything, everything. Can't do that. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace. What about this? Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. It has to be grace. It has to be His mercy. Let me end with this question that I started with. How does our freedom, if everything is by grace, if there's all of this evil that's pervasive, and there is this power that we call good, how does it work? How does freedom, choices, responsibility mesh with God's grace? How does verse 32 work? It says, For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. God's sovereignty, our responsibility. And the answer was found in chapter 8 of Romans. And it's this little idea called redemption. That in all things, in all things, not all things are good. Remember, many, many things are evil. We just talked about this, right? Many things are evil, but in all things, including the evil, God works it, uses it with his power. That's opportunity and ability. And in his case, obligation for the good, this direction of love. He is able to do that. Are you able to do that? Am I able to do that? Can I be your redeemer? Can you be mine? Are you able to take my life? And every little piece of it, every little mistake, every oops moment, can you take it? And work it for the good? Do you understand that kind of economy and efficiency and irony and poetic justice? Do you have that kind of wisdom and knowledge? Do you even have the motivation to do that? Are you a loving person? I'm not. I can't do it. But God is that. And that's where the rubber meets the road. Our responsibility fully, more than we ever realized... God's sovereignty, more than we ever imagined, coming together how? Through grace in redemption. Let me show you something cool in this chapter. Verse 11, transgression leads to salvation. Verse 12, failures lead to riches. Verse 15, rejection leads to reconciliation. And then in verse 30 to 31, disobedience and jealousy lead to mercy. Can you do that? That is the redemptive power of God. That's what good is good for. 
God's power, God's economy, absolutely perfect in its efficiency and irony and surprising and finally mysterious nature. Who can fathom the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God? Now, that is so good. I want that. I need that kind of presence. And at the very least, a safety net in my life. How else would I sleep? How else can I take one step more forward? How can I do that? How can you know that? How can you trust that? How do you know God is that? And the answer, of course, is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christianity claims that God gave himself in the person of his son and he incarnated as a human being and he took on all of the evil that's around us and in us, bearing the weight of that, claiming to be God, claiming to be love itself. He died. Burying all of the evil. And then to verify that that is true. And that everything Jesus ever did and said is trustworthy. God raised him from the dead. And because of this historical biblical event. We can now know that God alone is good. He is powerful and he is alive and the same power that raised jesus from the dead and turned death into life an instrument of torture into a symbol of life that same power now is at work in us fighting the evil that is in us we are not left alone to the evil but good is finally ever able to overcome evil we have in jesus christ the very work and the meaning and the presence of God. And we see it displayed for us on the cross. Do we deserve it? Can we earn it? Can we maintain it? Can we predict it? Can we control it? No. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace. And God wouldn't receive the glory which clearly He alone deserves let me give you a uh, application point and then we will close the application point is this rest be at rest enter into the rest of people who are dearly loved people who are not alone with their devices with their hearts tendency towards evil whose hearts are deceived and darkened and bent be at peace and turn to god's rest be still and know that he is god not just god but god with us and not just god with us but god in us dads rest wives be accepted children come on to him sinners repent and be cleansed and church Beloved, it will be okay because in Christ, through redemption, by grace, evil has been overcome with good. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?
God, I thank you for your presence in our lives and in our limited way by the spirit that is at work within us because he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. We pray to you in full confidence that you love us and you care for us. And we thank you and we worship you and we look to you. Jesus, be our Savior, be our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.